0: or Salem Media Group. Welcome to the Bullington Capital Report, hosted by Bill Bullington. For the next hour, you'll receive information on current market conditions and trends that could affect your financial future. If you have a question, you can participate in today's program by calling 216 9010945 That's 216-9010-WHK. You can also reach Bill by going to his website, BullingtonCapital.com. And now, here's Bill Bullington.
1: And I'm back. Hey, I'm actually live in the studio this week. (laughs) I've actually been traveling a little bit. Uh, out to see some clients. Don't live too close. And, uh, but glad to be back home. Glad to be here live in the station. If you have any phone calls, questions, comments, 216-901-0945. 216-901-0945. And uh, I guess I'll, I'll start off about talking about the seminar since this one's coming up pretty quickly. I think we have another couple of weeks here. But seminar title: Is a Recession Coming? That's the title of the seminar: Is a Recession Coming? And how could that affect your investments? How do recessions affect investments? Recessions affect different investments differently. And we're going to take a look at that. Uh, we're going to take a look at how it might affect fixed income, you know, things like CDs, government bonds, bond funds, long term, short term. We're also going to take a look at what types of stocks and stock strategies have a tendency to hold up better during this environment. Which ones have a tendency to do worse? And what you can do about it. So, if you'd like to sign up for that seminar, just go to my website, BullingtonCapital.com. And click on the seminar tab. It'll take you right there. The Seating is limited, but the there is no cost to attend. And uh, we'll be talking about that a little bit more in today's show. I'm also going to be talking about the highest risk-free, quote-unquote, risk-free rates of returns that you can get today. Uh, it's changed a little bit it's actually been kind of in a, almost in a range over the past few years, but we're going to talk about that a little bit today's show. What kinds of, uh, quote unquote risk-free because quite frankly, there's nothing, uh, that's actually risk-free. Everything has some sort of risk. When people say risk-free, what they're typically referring to is if the company goes under, am I still going to get paid? You know, if I bought bonds in, um, I don't know, Procter and Gamble or Apple. Will I still get paid? Will they pay the interest on that? And will they be able to pay? That's called credit risk, by the way, that's only one type of risk. There are other types of risks that people are subjected to, uh, that they may not be aware of. So we're going to talk about that a little bit uh, later in today's show. We're going to take a look at the types of interest rates that offer those sorts of guarantees, uh, Actually, not the type, but we'll look at the range of interest rates that are being currently offered in those types of investments. And uh, we'll look at why you need to have some of your money invested that way. Uh, for most people, the vast majority, not everybody, but most people need a fairly significant portion of their money invested in something that's relatively safe. We'll look at uh, what you can do to try to increase those returns and, and the risk behind them. Uh, And that's, you know, it's it's really interesting. The landscape for investing has changed fairly significantly over the past 10 years. Over the past five years, it's actually accelerated. And what I mean by that is in the past five years, the money that's been flowing into the stock market has gone more towards algorithm-based investment management strategies rather than people picking stocks the way it was done when I was new in the business And that's had a large impact on the way that stocks behave and uh, we're going to talk about that as well and, uh, in fact I think I'll even I'll just start off with that yeah when you look at the number of new exchange-traded funds that's been that have been created over the past four to five years actually the past 10 years. It's mind-boggling. There, are literally, each year, there tend to be several hundred new ones and there tend to be several hundred that didn't quite catch on and are being shuttered and clients' money is tied up while they do their final paperwork. That's really aggravating, by the way. And uh, <laughs> eventually, you'll get your money back. But in the meantime, you're kind of stuck there. Every time a fund shuts down, there's a period that it, you know, a period of time that it takes to shut that, get all the final paperwork done, do all the final accounting, and then distribute the assets. That that happens quite often. So when you're looking, when I'm looking at various uh, funds that come out, I want to find out if they've got enough money to be able to make it, uh, basically, to stay in existence, to generate enough income from their management fees that they can pay their bills and still stay in business. And then there's the strategy that that's always an important part. <laughs> what are they actually doing with the money? That's a big deal. And over the past oh decade, and it's actually accelerated over the past five years, the number of new funds coming out has, has increased dramatically. The number of new funds coming out because somebody sees something that they think that they can seize on, like cybersecurity. There was an ETF that came out, and I believe I'm going to check that really quickly uh, while I'm talking here. I believe that the. um, No, I, I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm glad I checked that before I said anything. Anyway, there was a fund that came out that was going to invest in in cybersecurity stocks that made or companies that made software or provided services for internet security. And that was a big deal, you know. It was a there were a lot of people waiting in line to be able to invest in that fund, and I'm not even sure if the fund is still around right now, but uh, which I think is kind of funny. I'll have to look that up actually when I have more time, uh, because I should have probably done that before the show. But the uh, uh, this fund came out, and I'm not sure if it gained enough traction, but it came out not because those stocks weren't owned by other funds but because the fund management company saw an opportunity to, to kind of cash in on the public's awareness of big companies getting hacked and they would translate that into oh well the cybersecurity companies must obviously going to be make uh, going to be making they're going to be making a lot of money I can say that <laughs> and we need to invest in those stocks now. So that product was brought out because they are trying to anticipate the desires of the public to invest in a hot sector. And you see it all the time. I see like the, the low volatility funds. low volatility, by the way, has translated into much lower returns without so much a drop in volatility. Now by the way, I've done enough back testing personally that I would I knew that would not work before they started it. And, uh, see that, that's a very fascinating development in that industry. You see a lot of firms hiring a bunch of kids in their thirties. They're kids to me now. (laughs) And these guys have master's degrees, PhDs. They're mathematicians, but they don't have a lot of experience. Now these big firms hire them on purpose. They know they don't have a lot of experience and they know that they're going to, they're going to buy into the idea that we can reduce the risk without reducing the returns, and all we need to do is build a bunch of models, and then they do that, and guess what? You know, ends up underperforming, and a lot of those funds end up going away, and you got a bunch of really disappointed 30-somethings that were that used to manage the fund, or at least created the algorithms that manage the fund, and now they're doing something else. So that is so brutal, uh, and it's one of the things that you know somebody was asking me the other day, well, what makes you different? Well, one of the things that makes me different from a lot of investment advisors is the amount of gray hair I have, <laughs> literally the amount of gray hair. I was in this industry before Al Gore invented the internet. By the way, that that's an old joke. I got to drop that from my repertoire. <laughs> the internet was actually started in the late 60s, okay. late 60s. 60s, and it was a government project. Anyway, it wasn't very popular when I got started in this business. So you didn't have access to a lot of the same information that you have access to today at the touch of a a button or, you know, type in a few keys on your keyboard, hooking up to the Internet wirelessly the way I am in the radio station here right now. A lot of that stuff just didn't exist. And uh, um, now that it does or has existed and I paid I it's unbelievable how much money I paid for access to data and had to learn to teach myself how to write code that was brutal I don't remember all that much of it anymore by the way because that was a long time ago uh it was before you had access to the data that you have today and I would have just gone nuts on the existing data the the, the databases I spent I don't know probably the better part of I don't know, 24 hours in the last three days running illustrations for just two clients because I'm trying to find something. And, uh, it's not that easy to do even with the access to all the data. But I got to tell you 20 years ago, uh, you could have quadrupled that time. No sweat. It would have quadrupled the amount of time that took. And we've come up with some, uh, ideas that I, that I really like. I'm pretty sure the, uh, clients, well, hopefully they like it it's a lot of effort But the bottom line is when you're doing that and you've done it for so long and you you have a pretty good idea of how the markets actually function, there's a lot of value to just the experience, the experience level. And I was one of those people, you know, who uh, really was skeptical, still am to a large extent, was really skeptical of anybody telling me anything because I'd been burned uh, when I was new in the industry pretty quickly. And I had some experiences that, Looking back, I would have loved to have avoided, but now I'm kind of appreciative of having gone through them because it really taught me that you really need to take this upon yourself and prove it to yourself. And uh, thank God for Google, by the way, because I have a lot of clients who feel the same way. And they can go and and look at what I'm telling them. They can go and do some research. They can Google it and find out that, yeah, you know, that's, that's actually how that works. So, Yeah. Well, that's the, uh, you know, smart businessman, uh, tells the truth, not because he's a good guy, but he, but because he wants to stay in business (laughs) because you can find out now the, uh, and people don't react kindly when they, when they realize that you, uh, misled them. That is not a good thing. Um, so had a lot of those experiences personally, you know, I have a strong conviction that I don't want to do that. Which probably makes me talk too much because I'm, you know, I try to get understanding out there. And, uh, and that is hard to do when it comes to stocks. You know, understanding how the stock market do is, how the stock market works is really tough because it's actually not what you, not the way you want it to. There's a thing that's called cognitive dissonance. And I heard that term before. There was actually a pretty good book written about it. I didn't get the author's permission because he is a client of mine. The, uh, but, uh, if I get his permission, I'll, I'll promote his book. I'm pretty sure he's not going to be that upset by it, but the, uh, but I still need to get his permission anyway. But here's the thing. People have an idea of what they would like to see, of what they'd like to be able to achieve. And then they take that idea and they just think, I just need to find someone who can do this. I know somebody can do this for me. And the ideas in my career, my experience has been, it's generally not that far away from what is possible, but it's kind of like a horse race or uh, horseshoes. Close, kind of counts, <laughs> but you're not going to hit the ringer. If you want to get the top score, you got to hit the ringer, and the ringer is not possible in this case. What am I talking about? kind of sense does this make i'm just going to lay it out for you average person comes into the office says you know i'm not asking for much i only need to make six percent a year and i'm like okay i look back at a lot of the uh actually if i go back to before the stock market crash, if i go to 2007 and i run one i run my models just the stock side not the bond side I'll come back to that. I'll I'll circle around back to uh, portfolios that have bonds in them in a second. For now, I'm just going to tell you that when you put bonds in your portfolio, you're going to lower the returns. That's absolutely going to happen. It's not an if. You're going to lower your returns. But if you just look at the stock side, just the stock side, I can show you strategies that have done better than 6% a year. If you started in March of 2000, do you know what that coincides with? That was the first time the stock market peaked before it dropped fifty percent. Went down fifty percent. Oh, by the way, in November of two thousand seven, it had just gotten above that level, the high level, when it turned and went down fifty-seven <laughs> percent. And that that is really hard. Okay, but even if you factor those two things in there. And there i've got a couple strategies if you call me by the way you have to call me in fact you have to set a meeting to see these in person i'm uh, my license for this data i it prevents me from being able to send it out to the masses i don't i didn't they want to charge an outrageous amount of money for that and i just don't feel like spending $60,000 just for the right to send a hypothetical illustration through the email do you blame me <laughs> Yeah, but you can come in and you can take a look at it. That, that's not a problem. The, uh, so anyway, so you look at these, uh, strategies and yeah, you've gotten, you would have achieved the 6% return. However, the, uh, declines, 250% declines, two, two times in 10 years. That is really tough to take. And, uh, you know, I have people that, Uh, Lots of people. This is not one or two. This is not an isolated incident, by the way. I mean, this is, I would say it's more common than not. Somebody comes in with an idea of what they uh, think they should be able to make. And then I'm showing them something that says, well, yes, you could, but you can't do it in the fashion that you would like to. If you want to have these big, uh, and today, by the way, anything over 5% is a big return. I don't know. It's hard to believe, the yeah, but it's just the way it is. You're going over 5%. You're going to be investing in stocks, and my suggestion is to buckle up. There aren't any stocks that aren't volatile that are going to give you a 5% average annual return. It's just not going to happen. They're going to fluctuate a lot, and I have to deal with that all the time, and Oftentimes people come in and say, "Look how much the stock market's up, and how come we're not up as much?" Well, because you have bonds. You have bonds. I can't change that. I have to. I have to have a certain amount of bonds in there. I'm a fiduciary. I'm not allowed to allow you to make the dumb mistakes. And the dumb mistakes are, I'm going to put all my money in in stock funds, and I'll know when to get out, and I'll know when to get. No, you won't. You won't. Over the past 15 years. If you missed only the 10 best days, if you miss 10 days out of 15 years, that 7.7% return return drops down to 1.9. Now what? That's what I'm saying. It's pretty hard. I hear the music. That means they have to uh, actually start to get ready for a commercial break. You listen to Bill Bullington right here on 1420 The Answer. I'll be back right after these messages. Son of God,
0: shaper of the stars, you alone, the swell of my heart.
2: There's a
1: child, and we're back. You're listening to Bill Bullington. I'm here every Saturday morning from 11 to noon. If you'd like to learn more about me, you can go to my website, BullingtonCapital.com. You can sign up for our upcoming seminar. There's no cost to attend. However, seating is limited. That's going to be Thursday, May 2nd. And that's at, uh, we're going to start at 630. And we're going to be talking about, is a recession coming? And how could that affect your investments? Now, preparing for a recession is kind of like preparing for winter. It's not like you don't pack your stuff or sell all your stuff and move to Florida every time winter comes, right? (laughs) You just prepare and you make it through. So you got to kind of learn how to do that with your investing. And it's not that all that difficult uh, to do. I actually, I think it's a little easier today than it ever has been. Uh, And we were just talking a few minutes ago about risk control and what kinds of risks are out there, various forms of investing actually we're talking about a lot of things cause that's kind of how my brain works anymore. <laughs> it goes in 10 million different directions. but um, but I did want to come back to that and kind of talk about, you know, what kind of returns can you get without taking what most people think of as risk? And they're really talking about credit risk. Not everybody. Cause I know there are some pretty sophisticated investors out there that who are under, you know, understand that there's also market risk. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. And, uh, Um, there's also a, um, interest rate risk when interest rates go up. Some types of guaranteed investments actually drop in value in the short run. And sometimes it's not so short. It can stay that way for quite a while, but we'll talk about all those things in a couple minutes right now. I just wanted to kind of pull up, you know, if you go to the uh, wall street journal and they have a market data page, it's, um, I think it's worth the subscription actually <laughs> to have this online to be able to get this data. Is, it's pretty nice. So a three month treasury, that's a three month bond that you buy from the US government. Right now it's paying 2.45, which is kind of interesting because a two year treasury was only paying 2.39 and a five year treasury was only paying 2.37. Those two-year and five-year Treasury notes, government Treasury bonds, are supposed to actually pay more interest than the three-month, and that's that's one of the things that has gotten a lot of economists alarmed. They're saying, "Oh no, that's called an in- inverted yield curve," and uh, but it's it's not all that bad, uh, and uh, it might just fix itself anyway. But the ten-year Treasury two point five six. The 30-year treasury, 2.96. Now, all of those are taxable. So you'd have to pay taxes on all that. So if you're looking at, let, let's take the, the 30-year, no, let's take the 10-year treasury. 10-year treasury, 2.56. So if you have a million dollars, or let's say just $100,000, and you buy, you put it all in, in one, one in 10-year treasuries, 10-year treasury bonds, you're going to get, on $100,000. That's what 2.56% is. By the way, you have to pay tax on that. So by the time you're done paying taxes, you'd get a little less than $200 a month. Okay, Not really all that high, is it? Uh, But it's better than it was a couple years ago because a couple years ago it was actually lower than that. Anyway, let's move on to the average CD yields. For a five-year CD, average across the country, 2%. So five-year CDs paying 2% on average. And and five-year treasuries are paying 2.37. By the way, the treasuries aren't taxable at the state level. The income tax doesn't count. So that's one small advantage. You still have to pay federal taxes, though. So right now, a five-year treasury is actually paying more than a CD is. And both of them have relatively low rates. Now, this is my, I'm slowly getting to my point. My point is, if somebody's willing to pay you more interest than what you just heard me talk about, 2.37 for five years, there is some sort of risk there. You can't do that without incurring some sort of risk. Most of the time it's going to be credit risk and a lot of times it'll be interest rate risk. And I'll talk about both of those in just in a few seconds. In fact, I'm going to start with the interest rate risk. If interest rates go up, if they were to go up a lot and you needed to sell your bond to pay for something, you might have to sell it at a slight discount because for every $10,000, you're only going to get $237 a year for 10 grand. And if somebody can suddenly get three hundred and fifty dollars a year because they raise interest to three and a half percent, which is really not all that much okay. but they're getting three fifty you're only getting two fifty. who the heck is going to pay you a thousand bucks for years when they can go you know ten thousand dollars for your bonds when they can go and get brand new ones that are paying a hundred dollars more i I'll tell you who will nobody. <laughs> So that's called interest rate risk. And if you bought a 30-year you bought a thirty-year bond and interest rates move up, the potential for those bonds to drop in price is pretty substantial. The longer time period that you are buying a bond for, the higher the interest rate risk is. I'm going to leave that alone for now. We'll come back, circle around a little bit later. But the other risk, the risk that most people are probably most concerned about is because it's the one they're the most familiar with. Is the credit risk, or the, the risk of the business going out of business, and saying, "Oh, sorry, you know, we just we couldn't pay all of our bills. We filed for bankruptcy, and and now you can have some of what's left over." Well, if you're not a bank that holds a note, or a uh, um, one of the people that are really high in the totem pole for the assets, you're just a bond holder, and it's not a senior bond. Then you may end up getting a lot less, if anything if you know, in a lot of cases, the bondholders get nothing when a company files for bankruptcy. that's called credit risk. That's the one most people are always thinking about, and an unsophisticated investment advisor will talk to clients about companies who have large interest payments because the uh, or they're making large interest payments because they know those are actually easy to sell because the rate of return is so high. And occasionally, I mean, when you do that, if you do that often enough, sooner or later, you're going to buy stuff that's going to file for bankruptcy. I know. I've had, uh, I can I bought some bonds. They filed for bankruptcy. We ended up getting all of our money back. Those people that waited, you know, those people that followed the advice that I gave them, we ended up doing very well on that eventually. But yeah, that took a long time. I mean, that was a long time and we missed out on the interest over that period. So, uh, I like to tell it like it is, not like I think, you know, what you want to hear. And by the way, talk about something that seemed like a sure thing at the time. <laughs> I won't, I won't worry about the details on that. It just, it looked like they just could not miss and they missed. Yeah. And you got to get used to that, by the way. And the reason that most people can recover from those sorts of things. Is because most people don't put all their money in any one thing. That goes back to managing risk. How well do you diversify? If you're really well diversified, that's why funds are so popular because they're automatically diversified. You buy a share of a bond fund, it's got a 1,000 different issues in there, 1,000 different bonds, probably several hundred different companies, actually maybe even a 1,000. So there's some protection there by diversifying that's one of the ways that you you manage the risk on bonds you don't put all of your money in one bond you just or one company you just don't do that and uh, that's a hard lesson to learn by the way and i think anybody that's been around in financial markets for a really long time period has probably experienced that at some point in time uh, unless you just got really lucky or were willing to accept you know are probably just stuck with cds or government, you know treasuries because by the way you know that's one of the reasons treasuries are so popular. see there's this uh thing called a printing press that the United States government owns <laughs> if they whenever they if they really needed to you know, if push came to shove, they could actually print their own money and circulate it. They would never do it well, I shouldn't say never very unlikely that they ever we ever get to that point, okay but you know. All other things being equal, they have that option. That's why the credit risk is this, you know, considered to be super safe. So you got that credit risk is out of the question. You've got the uh, interest rate risk. Talked a little bit about that. If you guys don't get anything about this or you, you want to ask questions, please feel free to give me a call. The reason I'm bringing these up right now, those are your right now that the yields that we're talking about somewhere between two and, and two and a half. Those are your safer rates they're not very long term so you don't have a lot of interest rate risk they have no credit risk because they're direct obligations of the united states you know treasury the uh so those are the super low risk that's the super low risk end of the spectrum on guaranteed or fixed income investing right reason i'm bringing this up i see things all the time People are saying, oh, this one's paying 4%. Okay, if they're paying 4%, there's risk there. To get 4%, and by the way, I'm assuming that the company that's that's offering this product has, to, has employees that they have to pay. They probably have rent. They probably have a website. <laughs> In other words, they have a lot of expenses. And if they're going to pay you 4%, and the higher... Safe investments are paying two or two and a half percent. They're going to pay four percent, plus they have to earn all their expenses. What are they doing? I can tell you what they're doing. They're taking risk. That's what they're doing. It's not as risk free as you might think it is. So, and I struggle with this quite often because I'm dealing with with clients who look at that sort of thing and say, "Well, I, you know, there's this rate over here, and it said six percent, and then you look at it, and that's a distribution rate on an annuity." That's not a real interest rate. And the annuities, well, I put $100,000 in, I get 6% a year. Yeah. And like 4.5% of that is your principal. They're giving your principal back. (laughs) That's exactly what they're doing. Or you've got a a minimum guaranteed rate on a variable uh, annuity. Normally those rates are not very high. And a lot of the ones that, that have higher guaranteed rates will end up going out of business and they can't make good on them anyway. So if you're looking at what is reasonable right now, it's somewhere between 2 and 2.5%. Two and that's a reasonable for something that's super safe or it's got more safety, I should say. It's at the higher end of the spectrum on the risk spec, uh, scale. Anyway, I, uh, I should remind you, you can call in to ask any questions you have today, 216 945 Two one six nine zero one zero nine four five, and I do have a phone caller, and I'm going to go right now to Laszlo. Laszlo, are you there?
2: Good morning. Hey. See, I wanted to get your opinion on a, a, a company called Cedar Fair, symbol F-U-N. I've been looking at that stock for a while now, and it's yielding over 7%, which mm-hmm. is, oh, it sounds very attractive. I wanted to see what you thought of it and uh, what its long-term prospects might be.
1: Well, it, it's been around for a really long time. Uh, it's been around for, a, around for a super long time. And, you know, they own Cedar Point. Uh, they own uh, some other facilities as well. I haven't looked at this in quite a while. When I look at what the the value of the stock is, if you added up all the shares and multiplied it by the $53.81 that it closed out on Friday, the market value is $3 billion, Okay. Now, uh, they... The revenue they had over the past 12 months was 1.34 billion. That means its its price to sales ratio is 2.2, and uh, that price to sales ratio that's right around average, right around normal for a company like that. Yeah, uh, and the reason I say that is I do this thing called a 60 second test. Only I can do it in my head in about 10. <laughs> When I first learned how to do it, it took about 60 seconds because you have to look up the numbers and punch them in and put in calculator. By the way, I'm going to teach everybody how to do that at the next seminar. So you will actually, if you learn how to do that, you'll never even, you'll actually never call in the show again. (laughs) You'll actually do this on your own. But the, um, here's the thing with a a company like Cedar Fair. Uh, you know, it's an amusement park, kind of expensive, actually. I don't know how long it's been since you've been to Cedar Point, but, uh, wow. Um, you can spend some money there. So if the economy goes into recession, they can actually end up um, losing money that year because not enough people show up at the parks. Because you do not have to go to the park okay, to live in this country. You do have to eat food. You probably have to wear clothing. You probably have to have a place to live. (laughs) And what I'm saying is that there are other businesses, other industries that are more predictable than a company like this one. So, but at its current price to sales ratio, I think it looks pretty good. Um, The profit margins fluctuate all over the place, and for a lot of other reasons than just that it's a cyclical business. So, I would look at it and say, yeah, it's okay. You know, if you like that that big dividend, hopefully they're able to maintain that for a while. And I would probably go back and look. I'll probably go back and look at this in more detail because right now, I you know, being on a radio station, I don't have the kind of time I would really like to take to be able to look at it and kind of look at some other numbers. But right off the bat, it doesn't strike me as something that is nosebleed territory or that might crash and you lose all your money. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but they do have, a you know, they have a fairly substantial amount of debt as well. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Hang on a second. Let me take a look at that. Yeah. Cash short-term tangible. Oh, yeah. They, they got a lot of debt. Their uh, tangible book value is a negative number. That means their debt is higher than their equity is. Uh, so, um, that's a little risky for me. Uh, I, I, I do that occasionally. If I really liked that company line, I might buy just a little bit of it and put it, you know, put it in an account somewhere and, uh, wait and yeah, if it doubles, then I would definitely sell it. But, uh, it, it that's a tough one. It's, it's not an easy one. And yeah. now that I hear the music, I, I got to take a real quick commercial break. Did you want to hang on?
2: No, that's good, I appreciate your insights. Thanks very
1: much. No problem. Thanks for calling. Listen to Bill Bullington right here on 1420 The Answer. I'll be back right after these messages. And we're back. You're listening to Bill Bullington right here on 1420 The Answer. I'm here every Saturday morning from 11 to noon. Hey, if you'd like to attend that upcoming workshop on May 2nd, its uh, title is, Is a Recession Coming? And How Could That Affect Your Investments? Feel free to go to my website to sign up there. There is no cost to attend. However, seating is limited. And if you'd like to call in today, 216-901-0945. Only got about 15 minutes left. I'm going to go right to the phones now to Richard. Richard. Thanks for waiting.
2: Hi, yeah, Bill. How are you? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yes. Do you agree? Uh, the stock market has always gone up, and the reason is that we've always had positive economic growth. So it needs economic growth to go up in the future.
1: Do I agree with that? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> It, yeah, it, okay.
2: it, so, it, Yeah, uh, it just doesn't go up in mind,
1: a straight line.
2: Yeah, but if you don't mind me suggesting, um, on your show, uh, you should talk up that um, we have a very strong economy now, and this is uh, good and helps the um, companies increase their sales and earnings.
1: Oh, I'm a big believer yeah. in the stock market. I'm a big believer in this particular stock market. And uh, for those people that, that have been listening, probably tired of hearing me talk about it. But, you know, technology has always driven the economy forward. Back in the early 1900s when, you know, they started rolling out cars, horseless carriages is what they called them. That was the technology. None. Then they came out with tractors. You yeah. uh, know, the telephones were actually invented in the late 1800s. And think about how many jobs... That's created, and the, how many people are still working for a major telecommunications company that was around in the late 1800s. but it, it's mind-boggling. So yeah, I, I'm a huge believer. It's just not a straight line, And this is what uh, one of the things that, as an advisor, I think all advisors struggle with, people will hear us say that, and they anticipate that it's going to go straight up or it's going to be pretty smooth. But the reality is that the ride is bumpy. No big deal. That's just how it works. It's bumpy. And if you uh, if you want to try to control the bumps, you have to diversify, not only in the stocks that you hold, but the asset classes, stocks, bonds, cash. Most people in America, by the way, I don't know about the millennials, but the, uh, the generation of like 50 and above, they have much too high a percentage of their net worth in their real estate, just because of the value of their home. Okay. So that that actually, <laughs> that's why I'm not bringing the real estate into the equation, because people are typically overly invested in it anyway. But it's not that's not a horrible thing. It's just not quite as efficient as it could be. Yeah. But the other thing is that people need to have a, a certain exposure to stocks, and what that means is you got to be prepared for the ups and downs of the market. And what I've been hearing over the past, I don't know, probably five to ten years, is you get people that get to retirement age, and then they want to take off the risk. Okay, well, if you take off that risk, you're looking at 2.5% returns. That's what you're looking at. Those are your options. And when somebody tells you that they can get you a return that's above 3.5%, with little or no risk, I'm going to give that person the benefit of the doubt and just assume that they don't know any better. Because the only other reason they could be telling you that is that they don't want you to know any better. <laughs> so I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, you know, I remember what it was like not to know a whole lot. When I first started in the business, I didn't know a whole lot. And I relied on mentors and other people in the business uh, to to guide me in the right direction. And it took a while to to learn about what they were talking about interest rate risk. What is that? We didn't have these calculators they do like you have online now, and you get to find out the hard way <laughs> what that's like. I have sure.
2: Yes. Uh, so now people are pushing socialism out of sheer ignorance, and this would have a chance of ruining economic growth and the stock market. Do you agree?
1: No but that's okay because we're both Americans. I feel like you're entitled to your opinion and there's no way you're changing mine. (laughs) I I think there's a level. There's a level that you need to get to and I think that level is probably always changing just like everything else in life. And you try to stay cognizant of it. You try to keep uh, adjusting and making adjustments. And the bottom line is you just do the best you can. You know, you just got to do the best you can. And if you've given it your best effort at the end of the day, you know, then that's all you can really do. But I don't think anybody knows what the answers are to those things. Everybody's got a, opinions on what would work. Uh If you really feel strongly about something, I would say get involved with a uh, an organization that would promote that and, and make those messages known to your representatives. The uh but.
2: And people are pushing it. They don't, they're
1: ignorant. They don't know. Well, we don't want... I, I don't think anybody wants a Marxist state, you know. I, I really would find that hard to believe. I'm a big believer in competition. And competition's really, really... It, it's hard. Competition is incredibly hard. and But it brings out the best in everybody. And it brings out the best in companies. And that's one of the reasons that, that we're so far ahead of other countries... Because it's been a little easier to compete here. You could move to America and open up your own business. Try to do that in China.
2: Right.
1: Well, we have a free market. It's pretty free, isn't it? Mostly free, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. The uh, See that part, I, yeah, I'm in total agreement with. Yeah, you got to have opportunity. I believe that completely. And it's really tough, you know. You get people that are older that can't take care of themselves anymore. I mean, um, they need some help. And uh, I don't know what you do. I don't know what the answer is, quite frankly. Yeah. All I know is that you just have to go back to work every day, keep giving it your best effort. You're going to make mistakes along the way, but you'll also have successes. Look how far this country's come. Every time I take a plane Here's ride someone, somewhere. I have
2: another, I have another question. Um, do you think that uh, people's Social Security uh, earnings should be invested from the time they start working in the stock market? And I prefer 100% stock. And by the time they retire 40 years later, they could be uh, very wealthy.
1: Unless you invested in Japan in 1988. Because their market's 40% below where it was 31 years ago. So and that 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 's a problem that 's a big problem and uh, i don 't really have enough time to talk about all the issues that that would bring up there aren 't enough stocks for the government to be able to do that by the way, there are only about thirty one hundred stocks big enough for a mutual fund to be allowed to be invested in that 's not a lot when you have three hundred and thirty million people okay, so if if they were to pass something like that um, not nah, that that could be that could be devastating I mean, think about that. So the, the government of Japan's got to pay out all these people on their social security program, and their investments are only worth 40% of what they were 31 years ago. You know, you, you could have the same thing happen here, here in the United States if you passed a law like that. So, yeah, but in
2: Japan, I don't think they do uh, put deductions
1: for... Okay, let me point this out to you. Your investment's worth 40% less than it was worth... 31 years ago, 40% less, 30 years. How do you pay out anybody
2: anything? Well, it's a good question, but uh, that's why we have to have economic growth.
1: (laughs) Japan's had economic growth. The problem is that their stock market got overpriced. The stocks weren't worth what they were selling for. And that's a big problem. And hopefully that doesn't happen here. The, uh, it's not there now. I can tell you stocks are selling right around where they should be. Some of them, some of them are actually undervalued, but it's a lot. We're in a lot better shape than Japan was in that time period. Although everybody in Japan thought, you know, it was great. They were all going to be rich forever because the market had gone up and so far, just like the internet bubble in the late nineties. That's what was happening in the Japanese stock market for about 15 years before it peaked. And that's what happens when that, you know, I, by the way, that's my biggest fear. <laughs> I go to bed, I think, oh man, I hope we don't come enough become another Japan. There aren't enough publicly traded companies anymore. There are more, there are five times as number, uh, five times the number of stocks are of funds. than there are stocks for them to invest in. That's a problem. Yeah uh, it hasn't really materialized yet in stocks that are super highly overpriced and non wood that's not going to happen for a while but the uh yeah it you know you, like I said you just have to go to work every day do the best you can and uh a large part of this is really it's going to be luck and fate and unless you have a crystal ball that works and can predict the future accurately the best thing to do is carry a diversified portfolio, stocks, bonds, and cash, get with somebody who can identify how much risk you're taking, try to keep the risk within your guidelines. If you, if you take care of the risk, the returns typically take care of themselves.
2: Yes, but, but you know that if you hold bonds very long, even a low inflation Hey, Richard,
1: rate... I, I, I got to run because the, uh, the music's playing and they're going to kick me off the air here, but you can call back in next week and we'll com- continue the conversation. uh, Anyway, you're listening to Bill Bullington. here every Saturday morning from 11 to noon on 1420 The Answer. Have a good week, everybody. Good luck and good investing.
0: You just caught another edition of the Bullington Capital Report, broadcasting every Saturday at 11 a.m. on AM 1420 The Answer. If you have a question and you'd like to speak to Bill personally, you can call him at 330-664-0700. That's 330-664-0700. Or online at bullingtoncapital.com. That's bullingtoncapital.com. of or substitute for personalized investment advice from the advisor or any other investment professional. The preceding program has been paid for by Bullington Capital Management, LLC. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency. Knew all the government's...